Hi guys, welcome back to Mastering Agility, a podcast series that aims to inspire you and others by bringing the best guests to this show. Now make sure to go to the website of masteringagility.org, subscribe to the newsletter, stay up to date with the latest information when it comes to this podcast, as well as get that OptiLearn discount. Pretty sweet deal if you ask me. Also, I would love to learn what you like about this show, how you would rate it. And I'll include a link to Podchaser review platform in the show notes, but I would just love to hear from you guys. Now, in this show, we already discussed a couple of times how, for instance, our educational system could be reassessed by including different hierarchies. And today we're talking about participatory budgeting by first route with our guest, Luke Homan. I think it's a pretty interesting discussion. So let's dive in. Luke Homan, thank you very much. Appreciate you making the time to be here with us today. How are you doing? Good. How are you today? I'm doing very well, actually. Hey, um, I, I got your name through Lisa Atkins, and she was speaking highly of First Root. Tell us about First Root. Uh, Lisa is a longtime, uh, very dear friend uh, and, and an investor in First Root. So I'm glad that she's sharing uh, the information to everyone uh, in the Agile community and outside the Agile community. First Root is a benefit corporation, and I'll explain that in a moment, that is designed to use participatory budgeting to help students learn financial literacy and promote positive civic democratic practices within students so that we can grow up to have a more democratic society. Why is that so important to you? Oh, there's a lot of reasons it's important to me. Uh, I It's easy to say, oh, I'm a father and I care about my kids, but that sounds awfully selfish to me. I'm, <laughs> I'm a, I've been blessed to travel around the world in my Agile work. I've been to Bogota, Colombia and um, Edinburgh, Scotland and Tel Aviv and India and Singapore and Australia and Sweden and and Denmark and Amsterdam. And, you know, I've been everywhere that I can think of. Not everywhere there is, but lots and lots of places. And I am always struck that the more that I travel, the more kindness, the more humanity I experience, the more benefits of our of our various democracies around the world. We don't have to all be the same democracy, but the idea of creating environments where people can live free lives and, and have positive choices... I believe that that is under assault right now. And I believe that a massive contributor to that assault is social media, where the algorithms of social media companies have been proven through research um, to create divisive, negative experiences and and negative uh, belief systems uh, and violent belief systems. Facebook is among, uh, of course, now meta, but Facebook is among the worst of the Uh, social media companies, but they're not alone. When you sell a human as a product to an advertiser, you are going to create a business model that is incented to do things that are less than desirable. And so I'd like to see if we can change that by creating positive experiences so that that our children can have a 
lived experience of what democracy is supposed to feel like, what it's supposed to do, and carry that forward as they become adults and bring that into a more uh, positive set of relationships within communities. Oh, that's awesome. Now, what immediately triggers me with that is asking you, what, how, how do you feel about, for instance, YouTube now removing that dislike button when it comes to democratic systems and, and social media, having that, that system there that should be fed with all sorts of angles, for instance, having a dislike button? Well, let's think about that from a larger context of, of what the difference is between an opinion and a democracy. And there, there's a vast gulf. If you ask me my opinion of a video, I may want to like it. I may want to like super like it. I may want to dislike it. I may want to super dislike it. But that's that's like asking me about my opinion of the color blue versus the color purple or what brand of sneakers I care about. That That's not a democracy. That's not even close to it. A democracy is uh, when a community is grappling with choices and decisions some of it informed by technical information, some of it formed by values, and and some of it informed by personal dispositions. You may be a more intrinsically liberal uh, person, and I may be a more conservative person. Uh, and those are values that we bring to a conversation. And it's through conversation that we come to uh, understand each other's points of view better, and we can identify a course of action. So democracy is founded on some notion of deliberation before a vote. Social media is founded on not creating a a conversation or a deliberation. Uh, you and I don't watch the same YouTube together and and then talk about it and then vote. We we're given a flyby opportunity. So I think when people uh, and, and it's an easy mistake to make, right? Because we see the act of voting and YouTube or other social media as liking or disliking. And then we're like, oh, yeah, I vote for my uh, candidate for mayor or I vote for whether or not we should raise or lower our taxes or I vote for whether or not we need more schools or or um, we should uh, retrofit our sewage plant. I'm, But it's not even close to the same concept. It can be a very dangerous thing in that case. Yes. Yeah, because you're promoting the act of voting without promoting the act of deliberation. How would you ultimately see, uh, would like to see how this information is being fed? Well, that's a, it depends on the information and the decision. I mean, if it's truly a video of cats and it has no impact on my life, sure. I, I, who cares? But if I'm having a choice to make about two given proposals that affects a larger group of people, then I'd like to have that opportunity to talk about it, to assess it, to consider it with other people. And that is what we're creating at First Root. So at First Root, we go to a school and we give the students money to manage. So we teach financial literacy through actual lived experience of managing money. We teach civics by giving them money. Now, it doesn't have to be a lot. So let's say we went to a school. Um, I believe your currency is euro? Yeah. Okay. So let's go to a, an average school uh, 
and, and give them 2,500 euro. That's not that much money. It's a, but it's interesting. It's enough money for students to do something useful. And it's not so much money that parents are going to step in and take over. So now the students are given money. What do they do? Well, in our platform, they establish a theme. For example, improving athletics or improving the school spirit or getting more uh, equipment for uh, school spirit. Then they create proposals. They, they simply dream. What would be good about what we could do? Then they move into a design phase. They use design thinking to take those raw ideas and shape them. So notice that we're teaching the act of design thinking in the context of uh, a community endeavor. In this case, the community is the school. Eventually, those proposals have budgets, and the proposals that are way out of expense are removed because you can't afford them. But the proposals that you can afford are put into a ballot. And then the students decide through a voting process uh, that includes promotion and and deliberation uh, what to do. And then the votes are ratified and the projects are implemented. So let's say, for example, that the students decide that they want more school spirit. And one of the ways to create school spirit is to paint a mural that would be representative of the community and and the people attending the school. Well, now as a, as a teacher or as a parent, you're not doing the work. You're simply saying to the, to the kids involved, okay, if you want to paint a mural, how are you going to do it? Who's going to get the paint? How much does the paint cost? Who's going to clean up? Who, do, who approves the mural? Where will you put the mural? Uh, what kind of paint do you need? What's the quality of paint? Is it inside? Is it outside? I mean, all of these questions are now converted into something that is authentic to the students. They want to get involved. They want to uh, learn these answers uh, to these questions. Uh, And then uh, they take it to a vote. Now, if the vote is ratified and and the mural is selected, well, that's really exciting. The students get to go implement the proposal that they voted on. They get to get the paint. They get to create the mural. They might have parents involved. They might have teachers involved. That's great. Um, but the whole process is now giving teachers an opportunity to talk about, okay, now how would we apply this process to our city when we need new roads? How would we apply this process to our parks when we're planning, uh, when we're engaged in urban planning and we know that we need spaces for people to come together? So this is not just about product development. This is not just about financial literacy. You give them, those students, a whole new spectrum of questions to consider. Okay, we we have some idea in mind, but there's more to it than just painting that mural. There, the, the questions that you just mentioned are going way beyond that. Where are you going to get the paint? How much? Uh, who's going to be cleaning up? All these kind of things that people need to consider, that those students need to consider. What do you see? Absolutely. What do you see has been the effect so far? Well, the effects are really amazing. Uh, let me talk about just the kind of things that kids do, and then we'll talk about some of the social science behind it. Um, when we go into schools, sometimes parents are a little skeptical because they may not trust their children as much as I trust my children. Uh, I have four kids, and, and I think they're marvelous. And I know that kids are good. I know that kids are, are going to do good things. 
So in one school that we worked with, a uh, high school, the kids bought more books for the library and created a new reading space in a elementary school, which uh, I don't know if we have the same grade levels exactly, but think about nine-year-olds, nine and 10-year-olds. They ended up choosing a new tree to make their school more beautiful, uh, soccer nets for the play field, and fidget toys for the classroom, just for fun. <laughs> I know. And in one school we worked with, uh, high school, uh, so kids about 16 and 17 and 18 in America, this was a school in the middle of New York City. It was a low-income school, and they ended up buying more feminine care hygiene products for the girls' bathroom. And if you think about it, that's really profound because if you're a poorer student and uh, you're menstruating, you simply won't go to school if you don't have the right products. But we see kids do amazing things. We've seen kids buy 3D printers. We've seen them buy chemistry equipment. We've seen them buy band equipment. Um, As the sum of money gets larger, one high school in New York City actually gave their kids $500,000. Wow. And the kids decided to get a new gymnasium. Uh, And it was a joint school campus. We've seen kids uh, buy park equipment for the shared park infrastructure. So these these are all examples of uh, isolated programs. Uh, participatory budgeting is very, very big in Scotland. Um, Scotland does a, a tremendous amount. And, and again, the, the stories are very similar. Students create infrastructure. They buy equipment. They They improve their environment. They buy art lab supplies. They buy... Um, more textbooks or upgrading things. Uh, one school upgraded their entire library to include uh, books written in Spanish because they felt that the Spanish-speaking students were not served because there just weren't enough books in Spanish. Uh, and the kids talk about these things. The kids are uh, promoting social uh, uh, justice and more equity. Now, the research is very exciting. The United Nations supports participatory budgeting and has identified participatory budgeting as one of the 20 most important democratic innovations of the last 100 years. And their research shows that when you are using participatory budgeting, communities are more engaged. Communities are safer. Uh, The spending of the public funds is more aligned with the needs of the community. There's less corruption in communities that engage in participatory budgeting. Uh, research in America has shown that when students are engaged in participatory budgeting programs, they become more engaged voters. They register to vote and they vote at a higher rate, which is what we want in any democracy. I actually don't really care if you're Democrat or Republican or you know whatever party you're involved. Uh, we want people to be involved and engaged. And and the final program uh, research is uh, some research in New York City shows that when schools are engaged in participatory budgeting, the information feeds into the city's choices and the schools improve, meaning the city is more aware of the student needs and therefore, the city is more equipped to create school infrastructure that's aligned with the student needs. So you're seeing this uh, reflection 
of the needs helping guide uh, the importance. And you'll see this like in Agile. Like if I wanted to make connections to Agile, we know that small team retrospectives are great. But one of the things that I pioneered in the Agile community was large scale distributed retrospectives where we would have dozens to hundreds of Agile teams who work for the same company uh, conduct a retrospective and then analyze the results. So uh, Sander, an example would be um, uh, Applied Frameworks is an Agile consulting firm. And we might go out and uh, if you if you were to do an Agile team retrospective with a, th- a single Agile team and that Agile team complained about their testing pipeline, you might be like, yeah, it's kind of everyone complains about their testing pipeline. But we did a project for B-Win Party in Europe, and we had 42 Agile teams playing the retrospectives game Speedboat that I've invented. And one anchor, which is something that slows your team down, in every single team was compliance verification of the software. Okay, now if one team complains about it, you might go, eh. But if every single team has one complaint about the same thing, you're going to investigate it. And Sander, what we found was very simple. The Agile teams were using a a version of uh, Cucumber to do their automation, but the compliance team was doing using a different version. So there was a version incompatibility and no one ever thought to look at the system because everyone thought that their problem was isolated. But when you looked at the data across the system, you found that this problem existed. And I think that this is an example of why you have to do large-scale retrospectives in bigger organizations because that's the only way to determine patterns across teams, just like the only way to identify the pattern of needs within a school is to ask the students involved. And this is a truism. And of course, Lisa has been a leader in thinking this way across uh, the Agile community for years. But this is literally the only way that we can improve is if we engage the people who are closest to the need and the closest to the problem so that we can look at at the patterns. And then, of course, even include them in uh, identifying how they want to address the solutions. There's so much incredible information in, this, in your whole story here. Now, <laughs> going back to the traveling part, what I'm really curious about too is did you see when, when traveling across the world, did you see any difference between, for instance, the gaps between the US or Colombia or the Netherlands? I, I do think that there are some cultural differences in the expression of participatory budgeting based on how we manage money. So uh, Western cultures that tend to have more of an individual perspective. So think think European cultures and, and the European outgrowth, American kind of management of money. We tend to have more of an individual perspective. It's, you know, it's my money. It's my bank account. So when you're doing participatory budgeting, they tend to have a flow of each individual has a certain sum of money that we then pool together and manage together. When you go into Asian cultures uh, where there's more of a collective uh, structure right off the bat, I remember one time I was in Singapore and we distributed money to everyone because we were Americans and they all looked at each other and they put the money in a pile in the center of a table and they decided that they would only make decisions 
yes, no, as opposed to looking at uh, preferences of intensity. And what I mean by preferences of intensity is uh, if you and I both have a million dollars to invest in a proposal that costs 500, a very European and American way to run that is you could put in 400,000 and I would put in 100,000 and you and I buy it together. In an Asian culture, they would tend to have the entire table say yes or no, and then the money is consumed out of the same pot. That is the model that we use in our uh, approach in, in participatory budgeting uh, for schools is we, we kind of emphasize that the money is a shared pot and we want the kids to be promoting thinking collectively. But there are some differences, uh, as you correctly identified or you guessed correctly, there are some natural differences, but the differences tend to be relatively minor and the technique itself is is universal. And like I said, it's endorsed by the United Nations and it's used uh, quite literally around the world. Do you think down the line this would ha- this, this has the potential to lower the gaps between rich and poor? Because these, these gaps are just at this point just getting bigger and bigger. Uh, where this feels more, it has the potential to me, at least when I hear you put it like this, it has the potential to create smaller gaps. It does, and it and it will over time. The, the racial wealth gap, especially in America, is is quite profound. Uh, there's you can argue different amounts, but it's it's so large that it's almost at the point we're arguing: is it ten times or fourteen times or seventeen times? It it doesn't matter. It, it's so profoundly large. Um, uh, the the inequity of of the racial wealth gap. It it. it it, it we we need to stop talking about how big it is and we need to start talking about how we're going to address it one of the challenges of addressing any wealth gap is that uh, wealth is predominantly created through ownership of an asset most people have two asset classes that they can be associated with most people not all people but most people um one asset class that I'm associated with is ownership of land or property. And one other asset class that I'm associated with is ownership of a business. Now, ownership of a business can be buying stock in a company like buying stock in Google or, or Apple or Amazon or owning a company. And again, it's easy to say you can own a company. It's actually kind of hard because not everyone's an entrepreneur and not everyone's not suitable it's not suitable for everyone and i don't think everyone should be an entrepreneur honestly i mean we need lots of people doing lots of things so tackling the racial wealth gap or the gaps of of economic structure that exists around the world requires a couple of things right first it does require education and that's where i'm most effectively focused is uh there is a difference between the knowledge of how money works when I may when I'm making my paycheck and I'm managing my budget and the knowledge of how money works when I want to accumulate wealth and what we find is low to moderate income people are very uh, skillful often at managing the flow of money but they're not necessarily skillful at understanding what creates wealth so When we go into a school and we talk about how our program works, we actually talk uh, through our financial literacy curriculum 
about how money is managed, but also how wealth is created. So we do cover that in our financial literacy curriculum. Now, the second part of of attacking the racial wealth gap is creating structures in society itself that promote greater equity. Uh, And this is about, this is simply boiling it down into one word. This is about fairness. How do we create structures that are considered fair? And as uh, we move forward with things like participatory budgeting, we give kids the opportunity to to experience more more fair outcomes. How do you create such a discussion about fairness? It's the same question as, Uh, what we consider to be value, right? In our agile environments, if you would ask, if I'm going to ask you, what do you define uh, as fairness? I would get a completely different answer when I would ask my neighbor. Well, possibly, but that's only because we may not have been educated on this. So the other curriculum that First Root has is a, a civics curriculum. How does government work, if you will? And one of the things that we do that is very rare in in civics curriculum is we have a discussion, uh, and I am a computer scientist by training, right? So I'm going to geek out on algorithms, but we actually have two lesson plans on the design and implementation of voting algorithms and how the algorithm that you're using can create more or less fairness. So let, let me give you the least fair algorithm at all for voting that we talk about in the Agile community. We talk about hippos. Hippos are the highest paid person's opinion. And in the Agile community, we say, when you're prioritizing the backlog, don't let a hippo do it. But in in actuality, what we're, what you're saying is the vote, the, the, the backlog gets prioritized through some mechanism of a vote. Now, in in certain practices in Agile, we centralize that vote into the product owner or product manager, or we give it to the hippo. Now, we theoretically presume that the product owner or product manager is acquiring data from other sources, but but according to Scrum, there's only one individual who prioritizes the backlog or orders the backlog. Okay, I'm not here to, to, to say that is a bad thing, um, I am simply saying that that's a form of a voting algorithm. Now, let's look at other voting algorithms. Most most or, most most countries have uh, representational democracies. So a group of people use a majority vote to create the representative who represents their interests. The problem is when I have five good candidates out of maybe 10, none of them may have an, a clear majority. So meaning a majority defined as more than 50%. So let's say that uh, you, you could pick your top 10 favorite agilists and, and, and they're all going to run for the mayor and they all get 10% of the vote. Well, who do we pick? Or one agilist gets 20% of the vote and the rest of those agilists get something less than 20. Well, in our current systems, we say, well, let's go with the person who got the most vote. But that doesn't massively mean that they're the most well-supported candidate. So now we've there's other voting algorithms. There's a there's a voting algorithm called rank choice voting, where instead of picking one person, you rank your top five people in order of one, two, three, four, five, and then the algorithm processes the results to determine who really is the most broadly supported candidate. And there's even 
Another voting algorithm called quadratic voting, whereas in quadratic voting, to, to vote for a candidate, in a sense, costs you a certain amount of money. So you have to, uh, and it's virtual dollars, but the point is that you're putting value into intensity. Now, I'm not sharing these concepts to sound smart or cool or fun or anything like that. I'm sharing these concepts to let the listeners know that the act of voting is an algorithmic choice. Algorithms can be designed to be more or less fair given the needs of a population and the goals of the algorithm designer. And we actually teach that in our civics curriculum. We actually have the kids think about the voting algorithm they're going to use and whether or not, like, for example, Sander, if I'm in a school, let's just say, for example, let's just say that I'm in a school of a hundred, let's pick it. I'm in a school of 500 children and 300 of them are boys and 200 of them are girls for whatever reason. Uh, Well, now I can have the 300 boys outvote the 200 girls if I use majority voting. Or let's say I'm in a school of 500 kids and we have uh, the right-handed kids versus the left-handed kids. And we already know that right-handed people are in a genetic dominant structure. Well, now the right-handed kids can outvote the left-handed kids on which guitars to pick for the band. Should I get a right-handed guitar or should I get a left-handed guitar? Well, since everyone's right-handed, we should get the right-handed guitar. Is that equitable? And and these are the concepts that we have to bring into the to the schools themselves so that kids can bring this into their uh, civic life when they become adults. I mentioned you didn't want to sound cool or something like that, but I really enjoy that you bring this up. And why? Because concepts like in, in the previous episode, we were uh, talking, for instance, about the Tuckman model that has been so constitutionalized in the way that we think, in the way that we operate in our businesses, that we kind of get blind to any other approaches, like what Heidi Helfen is now doing with dynamic reteaming. When she explains it, it sounds so logical, yet it's so challenging to let go of that old Tuckman principles and, and uh, let go of that stable teams. It's the same with, with uh, a voting system like this. It seems to be very logical and really cool um, that it can be actually be done um, where it still might be very challenging to put that into practices for a lot of organizations. What has been the biggest success when it comes to these kind of mindset shifts that you've been working with? Well, I think the biggest success is existential. I I think right now the company is so new, right? First Root, First Root is about a year old. Uh, we can't point to societal change yet because the change that I'm after is going to take years. But I am excited that uh, we're seeing schools in America, we're seeing schools around the world adopt participatory budgeting. And that creates, honestly, the business opportunity. Um, right what right now, what I saw in, in my corporate work in, participa- in participatory budgeting is that uh, people get really excited by it and then they kick it off But it's kind of a tedious process, right? You have to, like, if you go to a school and you were to do this in person, you'd have to get a means by which the kids create their ideas. Uh, So maybe they'll they'll cobble together a Google Doc or a Google Sheet, 
And then they have to figure out the voting process. And again, they might do a Google form or they print out the ballot and then they have to distribute the ballot and then they have to collect the ballot and then they have to ratify. So what happens is, is that uh, people get really excited and then they get really disappointed about how hard it is. Well, as designers, we have a responsibility to make tedious, hard things easy. That's the whole point of what we build as 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 engineers and as 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 people. And I, and I don't mean just for what you would normally think, right? We have safer cars because hardware and software engineers got together and created anti-locking braking systems. And when anti-locking brakes were created, it was like really big deal and really special. And only high-end cars had anti-lock brakes. Now every car is an anti-lock brake. Or when we had the rear view cameras in our cars to help us make sure that we're safe and backing up, that was a really big deal. It was a really big innovation. Absolutely. Now I think just about every car has a rear view camera. And we did that because software and hardware engineers worked together using hopefully agile techniques to lower those costs and make it safer. So uh, I, I'm really excited about where we are as a company because what we're seeing is when I go to schools and I talk to parents, uh, they actually react like, wow, what a great idea. Like we can get kids involved. And, it, and I would say maybe 10 years ago, there was more skepticism like, oh, we're really going to put money in the hands of kids. Is that a good idea? And now people are like, wow, what a great idea. Let's let's put some money in the hands of kids and see what they do. So I'm excited about that change because I think that's part of that slow. It's it's too slow for me, but I'm always impatient about making society better. So from a from a change agent perspective, I want things to get better faster, and so I want to see things move more quickly. I can imagine. And I do think that's a really important part to take that into the educational system. And why it's taking a very extreme example, uh, let's say NFL players get their debut and they get their first paycheck of a couple of million dollars. They have no clue what to do with it because they are not financial uh, literate. They, they haven't been educated that way. But it's a really extreme example, but still it works, for instance, in, in doing our taxes as well. But you mentioned you're going to give students uh, a budget of, let's say uh, two and a half grand first thing that popped to mind was how do you make money from this what's your business model yeah we make money uh, very simply we charge a dollar a student to use our platform so we're not a charity we are building a mechanism to make a business uh, and our economic models show that there's enough students in enough places around the world for us to have a thriving company uh, the second way that we make money is uh, what we're building next for our platform is if you think about where the money comes from for the kids, it comes from parents, it comes from corporations. Like we have lots of places donate the money to the kids and then it needs to be managed. So we're working with banks right now so that we can hold that money in a bank account, issue a debit card to the teacher so now the teacher has a means to manage the money that's completely separate from their personal finance, from the school finances. And more importantly, Sander, and, and this is something Bono said about government, corruption lives in the dark. 
And transparency is how we fight corruption in government. So we want to teach that to our kids. So once I have that debit card and I issue it to a teacher, the kids can see every single way that that 2,500 euro was spent, every cent. I had 25 euro, you know, 2,500 euro coming in. I spent a thousand euro on uh, equipment for the chemistry lab. I spent 800 euro on a 3D printer. I spent 400 euro here. I had this left over. We donated it to a charity. We kept it in the account for the next year. So however the students decide to manage the money, we're going to create a completely transparent ledger that anyone can look at from anywhere in the world. It's going to be kind of like a a mint, if you know the, the the there's a software program called Mint that opens up finances. We're gonna we're creating a mint for finances associated with these programs. And that's how we'll make money too, because when you're offering debit cards and financial back-end transactions, there's something called interchange fees, which are the parts of the money that the bank makes. And so we'll make money off of the interchange fees. So two ways to make money. One is on a per student fee. And the second is off of interchange fees. Awesome. When I hear you like this, um, do you feel this the first route is a very timely when it comes to generations? Let's put it like that. In other words, would this model have worked, let's say, 50 years ago? Probably not. Um, so so I, I understand what you're saying is, is, is this the right time for this company? Yeah. And could this company have come in the past and and could it be true in the future you're you're actually asking a more profound question than you realize uh there's a an incubator in in silicon valley called y combinator and y combinator has incubated a lot of startups successfully and they did a study of 600 startups and they found that the number one determinant of success was timing like are you in kind of the right company at the right time Not the right founders, just the right company at the right time. For example, Uber and Lyft were actually patented more than a decade before they were created. But the technology that was required to pull off Uber and Lyft simply didn't exist. But the but the idea existed and it was patented. So the question that that I'm uh, grappling with, and, and you're one of the very few people who've asked it is, is now the right time for first route? And I think it is. And, I, and I'll tell you why. First, uh, I helped form the Agile. I helped form the first Agile conference in 2003. And I've served on the board of the Agile Alliance. And I've been doing participatory budgeting first through buy a feature in my book, Innovation Games, and then subsequently as portfolio management as part of SAFE. So I've been doing uh, participatory budgeting and then in, in cities and schools for a long time. And I think that as agile has grown, as more inclusive techniques, more more egalitarian, more democratic practices, new organizational structures, teal organizations, I think that all of this notion of true inclusion in economic decision making has created an opportunity for participatory budgeting to scale and and scale big. And so I think that uh, our company is is in the right place at the right time. I think even 10 years ago, it wouldn't have worked. Um, but right now, we're seeing this 
this opportunity, uh, and it's tremendous. Well, awesome answer, because that also relates to um, the way that this generation seems to think and the, the, the mindset of the current generation and putting people, uh, their, their kids to school is vastly different from 20 years ago. So that's also one of the reasons I was asking. I had a discussion with one of my friends um, a couple of weeks ago where, for instance, my generation does not seem to be protesting as much as the newer generation or even the generation back. And it's the same kind of question uh, in, in your answer that I w- wanted to go with. Uh, is this the right generation for this to work? And I also do feel that this is the, the perfect timing for this uh, to start. And that's why I, what I really like about like, about First Route. It seems to be very unique. Um, and coming back to that business model, do you feel that's also the way that we're going to go forward when it comes to business model? I mean, in the in the past, you had very standardized, off-the-shelf kind of software, and that's how it needed to work. But this feels a lot more scalable and adaptable. Is that the way that you think these kind of products or first route is going to go into the future? I think so. Uh, we, we uh, and all of this is based on whether or not your architecture can support it. And so when you look at what we're creating at first route, we have this interesting model of, of local and, and global. So I want a global process that is tailored to each local school. So each individual school is an entity in our platform. Um, sometimes schools can be collected into groupings that are natural for the country, either a state or a country. Or a, in America, we have school districts. And a school district is a collection of schools, typically geographically organized. Um, they're not states, um, although the, 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 the boundary of a state Um, does collect a bunch of districts, but districts don't necessarily correlate with city boundaries. They often correlate with city boundaries, but they're not always exactly the same. And so when you look at the natural groupings and the natural structures, you do want to have an architecture that supports local autonomy where there are shared and similar processes and workflows. Uh, And I think that there are some interesting patterns that are starting to emerge because more companies are creating global software platforms for this purpose. Do you think that's that something that organizations tend to overlook, that the correlation between business model, architecture, and for instance, agility itself is, is disconnected? Yeah, I, I think that that's a very disconnected thing. I uh, In 2002, I published the book Beyond Software Architecture, and there's a chapter in that book that discusses the relationship with how you make money and the architecture itself. So one common way to make money in software is a transaction or a transaction fee. So when you think about uh, Visa or PayPal or, or a financial, that transaction is how they make money. So they're very good at transaction processing. And the amount of money they make is typically associated with an attribute of the transaction. So, for example, when you do a credit card payment in Stripe, they're going to charge on average 2.9% plus 30 cents for every transaction. So the amount of money they make is based on whether you did a 100 euro, 500 euro or 1000 euro. But the amount of work they're doing is the same and they want to be really good at doing that fast. Now, a different way to make money than a transaction, which is a piece of work, 
is by, uh, let, let's look at a hardware company. Well, I buy a microwave oven in the modern world. Like I just, we just, our stove, uh, we have four kids, right? My wife's a big cook. Our stove actually broke down finally after almost 20 years and we bought a new stove. I kid you not, my new stove is internet enabled. I can turn on, <laughs> I know, like why would you do that? It does not make any sense. But you can turn on your stove through my phone. Like I have an app on my phone that connects to my stove. Now, anyone listening to this knows that that's a lot of software that goes into, I mean, think about the the stove. Like you've got heating elements. Now you're adding wireless receivers and right. And now you're adding software and control systems and it can do remote upgrades and all this crazy stuff, right? Which is okay, fine. But I didn't get a separate software license fee. So some product manager had to change the economic model to afford the new team of engineers because 20 years ago, the stove, you know, the oven manufacturer had hardware people. Now they've got hardware people and software people. Well, software people have a salary and et cetera, et cetera. And so the 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 actual economics of those two companies, the business models and the actual architectures are very, very different where how they make money and how it gets manifested in the software architecture are very different. It's funny that you mentioned this specifically because uh, I was buying my kids a couple a pair of new shoes. I have three kids and they all needed new shoes. Now, they all wanted shoes with lights in there. And back in the day, they were already really cool. But these days, you can actually charge them with USB. So it's the same thing as uh, what you were mentioning, adding all these Wi-Fi receivers and such into an oven. I never for the life of me would figure that I would ever say, I got to recharge my shoes, man. I know. I know. It's it's so funny. And, and in fact, there's hiking boots now that have a battery that... You, when you're walking in the day, it charges the battery through the movement of your feet. And then when you go to bed on your camping trip, you can plug your phone and it recharges your phone. <laughs> <laughs> Which is brilliant. brilliant it but is. But as being a, 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 shoe, a shoe salesman, a shoe company, it does require you to have a completely different business model. That's right. Right. And that business model gets baked into your architecture. When one of the things that I pointed out way back in 2002 is the least agile part of any given system is its core business model. Meaning let's go to first route. I charge a buck a kid. So I need to know how many kids are in uh, the program and I have to authenticate them because I have to count them. I have to count how many kids. What if I change that model to be based on time, meaning you could have as many kids as you want, but the program has to be done in three months for whatever reason. Well, now my underlying architecture is going to change. And because it's, it's, I'm not changing the colors of my UI. I'm not adding a new language. I'm not skinning it. I mean, I'm changing. Imagine my API structure. One of them is going to be API calls to like add a kid, remove a kid, now the new uh, API and the new backend system has to be uh, how much time is remaining on the program. And these are very deep choices. And most agile companies don't realize that the least agile part of their systems 
is the business model that gets encoded into the architecture itself. And that's something that is, uh, I talk about, I still talk about it because I still think it's not well understood in the Agile community. Why do you think that it's so hard to to change that mindset? You mentioned this, you, you wrote this almost 20 years ago, um, yet it doesn't really seem to manifest. What's going on? Well, the first is product owners aren't taught business concepts, right? If you look at the average curriculum of a product owner in the Agile community, it's much less than what we would consider to be a product manager. So product management is a well-regarded field that predates Agile. And in product management, you're looking at things like market structure, uh, market, you know, who are you serving and why? how there's a whole economic side of agile that is often missing in most agile companies that I've worked with. So agile is good at building product in the sense of, um, uh, I know my personas and Jeff Patton's work on story mapping and I'm the design work of usability and user centered design and personas. We need all that, right? We want all of those products to be well-designed and safe and beautiful and support the workflows. But then you start to dig a little deeper and you're like, okay, is this making money? It is frightening to me how many product owners can't determine is their offering going to be economically viable? Will it make money? Will it make a profit? And I don't think profit's a bad thing. I mean, I, I can't serve my, I can't create a positive social outcome without making money to support my engineers. Now, that doesn't mean I want to do it in a way that's unethical. Uh, recently in America, we had one pharmaceutical company who made EpiPens suddenly raise the price dramatically because they could. And it was considered to be quite an unethical choice to take people who had to buy the product to, to save a life and suddenly have to pay thousands of percent more for it that that's not that's not an ethical business no it's it's a business it's not ethical and i think that would be a whole subject in itself and i i, I think we could record multiple episodes on just the entire healthcare system in the u.s and the way that these it's awful right it, it it's it's yeah it's awful and i think that would be a very nice way to put it but but going back to what we were talking about the 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 challenge that you asked is, and, and there's this, I think it's a relatively simple answer. Why do we not have this awareness in the Agile community? Because product owners are a tiny subset of the full capabilities of a product manager. And we, we tend to emphasize too much product ownership and we tend to de-emphasize product management. And what we need is product management. We need people who can, frankly, build spreadsheets what are my costs? What are my customers' willingness to pay? How do I know I've got the right price? What if I raise prices? What if I lowered prices? What are my partners? How do I create a sustainable relationship with my partners? How do I create an understanding of the regulation environment, the regulatory environment I'm in? How do I honor my regulations? Do my regulations cost me or do they create an opportunity? These are all factors that go into creating an, a, a business opportunity that is sustainable. And again, I just think that when I look at what most product owners are doing, it's it, it's not economically motivated. 
No, but I think that also relates to what we were discussing earlier. For instance, with the voting system, with the algorithm, with Tuckman's model, we are so ingrained in specific ways of thinking and thinking inside these boxes. And whether you're a product manager or product owner, in my experience, this way of thinking that you're describing here rarely comes out. How can we revolutionize that? Whew, I don't always know if I know how we can revolutionize that. Um, I do think that what we can do is we can, first we can, we, we can, you don't want to make anyone wrong for the experiences that they have, meaning we all have our experiences. Some of us were lucky to have more comprehensive training or more comprehensive experiences than others. So I work really hard on making sure that I kind of meet people where they are and I don't I don't make them wrong for not having the same background or same experiences as others. I think from there we just kind of have podcasts like this that that say to people, look, if you really want to be doing the best you can in an agile environment, you have to be able to have economically driven thinking. It's the first principle of SAFE. SAFE says, take an economic point of view. And that first principle of SAFE, and I know there are other methods out there, and I don't want to be overly, um, uh, you know, getting people worked up about which method they're choosing and why. But but one of the virtues of SAFE is that it takes an economic view. And I think that that's really much more important than people may realize. I do think so. Yeah, absolutely agree. I don't want to take too much of your time anymore because we're already 50 minutes in. If people want to know more about First Root or about any other of your um, uh, uh, organizations that you've worked with that you started up or about you specifically, where can they find you? Where can they find First Root? Yeah, First Root is easy and it's the best way to go. It's firstroot.co. So we're a .co. Um, I'm also very accessible on LinkedIn. I'll connect to just about anyone uh, in the Agile community for sure, because that's my tribe. Um, uh, and, you know, I care. <laughs> that's my tribe. Uh, and so uh, I'm very easily accessible. I mean, and you found me through Lisa. So I have I have really wonderful friends uh, like Lisa Adkins, who are just, the you know, the most remarkable people. Oh, they are. Absolutely. Thank you again for this uh, connection, Lisa. Luke, thank you very much for being here. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. You definitely opened up my eyes to uh, A, to first route, but also to these concepts of thinking in, in a different economic way. So I'm looking forward how can how, how I can personally apply that in practice. And I'm pretty sure that the listeners um, will do so as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. I hope you guys feel inspired by today's episode and I would like to thank you for joining us again this week. Now go to the website masteringagility.org, subscribe to that newsletter, get that OptiLearn discount code for all their scrum.org related courses. And please leave us a review on Podchaser as well. I would love to learn from you what you like about the show, what we can do better, what kind of guests you want to see. Just curious to hear from you. Now join us again next week where we're going to have one of the engineers of the Haas team of Formula One that's now going to the Williams team, the legendary Williams team, and we're going to be talking about performance engineering. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you guys are too. See you next week.